Turn, if you would, to the 22nd chapter of Matthew. We almost made it through chapter 22 two weeks ago, so we will rush through it and start chapter 23. I did have somebody ask me this morning when I was going to finish Matthew. I started working on a joke about this yesterday, but, but I never actually got all the math worked out, so... I had read that the earth is actually slowing down, so the days are getting longer. Every hundred years, it gets two milliseconds longer. So I was thinking that my lessons could get longer because the day's longer, right? So I could finish Matthew within a few thousand years. In chapter 22, we had... Jesus in Jerusalem being questioned by the Pharisees and the scribes, and they kind of go back and forth. They're trying to trap him. They begin by asking him whose authority he's doing these things. He responds with a question. Then he responds to the people going, uh, you know, who was John? What did he do? Et cetera, et cetera. And he had a series of parables where he explained that the religious leaders were not doing what they should have been doing. They should have been leading the people, but instead they were leading them astray. So the Pharisees and the scribes asking these series of questions, he silenced them. And at the end of chapter 22, he has a question to them. And we could have a long lesson on it, but we'll go over it pretty quickly. And then in chapter 23, he's finally going to have enough of the Pharisees and the scribes, and he's just going to let them have it. He's going to tell the people what the Pharisees are really doing to them. And I hope that's where we will spend most of our time today. But picking up in verse 41 of chapter 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, He is the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now, they would have been better off if they had just started at that point, right? Every time they asked him a question, they got in trouble. So he decided to ask them a question. And he asked them a very simple Jewish question. The Christ, the Messiah, whose son is he? Now, remember... Christ is the Greek term for Messiah. It is not Jesus' last name. It is his title. Sometimes we think Jesus Christ is like Kyle Scarborough. It's simply his last name. No, it's his title. So whose son is the Messiah? And they said, well, he's a descendant of David. I mean, there were a boatload of prophecies that talked about, you know, out of your seed, blah, 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 blah. You're going to have a son. And then Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm. It's a fabulous psalm that we could have a whole lesson on. And in fact, it's probably the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And he says, but David said, my Lord says to my Lord. Wait, there's too many lords here. The second word used for Lord is only used of the Messiah, no, of God, of God. So if the Messiah is God, then how is he a descendant of David? Well, he is going to be a descendant. Wait, wait a minute. And you can begin to understand why they start getting confused. Because he said, if it was just a biological child, why would he refer to him as Lord? No Father King is going to refer to his descendant as Lord because that would imply that he is, there's a hierarchy and he's in the wrong place. And Jesus turns to the Pharisees and says, what do you think? Whose descendant is he? And they're going, hmm, 
What he is trying to highlight to them is the fact that while Jesus is a descendant of David through Mary, he is also the son of God. And this just blows their minds because they had this idea of what the Messiah was going to do. The Messiah was going to be a physical son of David who was going to reestablish the Davidic kingdom and he was going to drive the Romans out. This idea of him being God, that kind of threw them. So, then Jesus, verse 1, chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples... Get the picture, right? Here's all the Pharisees. I'm talking to the Pharisees. Here's the crowd of people watching the show, watching me put the Pharisees in their place. And remember, the people actually admired the Pharisees. Not so much the Sadducees, but they admired the Pharisees. So he's been talking to the Pharisees, and he asked them a question they could, and then he turns to the crowd. He turns to the crowd, and he's going to talk about them. The Pharisees. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you. Stop right there. They are teaching the law of Moses. The law of Moses is good. If they teach you the law of Moses, listen to what they say. But, but, but. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. Don't follow their behavior. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. They, all, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. So, crowd... The Pharisees over here are the teachers of the law. When they teach the law, you have to pay attention to them. God's word is God's word. Even though the vessels that are teaching it are greatly flawed. When they are teaching God's word, pay attention. But don't do the things they do. And he is going to launch in the rest of this chapter a condemnation of the Pharisees. We're going to have a series of passages that begin, Woe to you, Pharisees. And most of them say, Woe to you, Pharisees, you hypocrites. One of them doesn't. The rest of them do. He's going to tell the people what is wrong with the Pharisaical view of life. He's going to tell them what they are doing wrong. And at this point, we need to ask ourselves a quick question. And that is, who does this passage apply to today? Now, we would love to think that that group of people over there, you know them, right? They're the Pharisees of today. Guess what? There are Pharisees today. There are people who believe that by following external list of behavior, they can be right with God or at least look a whole lot better than you do. And that's really what they're after. So we know those people exist. But we also know that Jesus has warned his disciples, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they thought he was talking about bread. And he had to explain to them that that pharisaical attitude can begin very small in each and every one of us. And if we don't watch it, that little bit of leaven, that yeast, will grow and permeate all of who we are. I say this so we don't just look at this passage thinking, ah, yes, this is describing my friend Joe. And I'll sit here and I'll condemn my friend Joe. Remember, this is a warning to all of us. This is a warning of the path that we shouldn't take. And that is the belief that by following external behavior, I can be right with God or that I can at least appear to be right with God. 
And that's what he's going to talk about here. There are going to be seven of these woes. Woe to you. If you're reading the King James, there's eight of them. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Each of them begins, woe to you. Now, in the biblical terminology, we have blessed are. We saw that in the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, etc. Those are the good ones. Those are the blessings. This is a discussion of who is right in God's eyes. The flip side of that are the woes, the curses. You don't want to be on that side. And that's what he's going to do to the Pharisees. So we're going to go through this step by step, looking at exactly what the Pharisees are doing that is getting them in trouble. And we're going to worry and make sure as we examine our own heart that we don't fall into these same things. So, backing up a little bit. They preach, but they do not practice. We'll just start right there. He's going to call them hypocrites repeatedly. Now, hypocrite is a word that we use a lot today in a lot of different contexts. Some right and some eh, not so right. There are those who believe that every Christian is a hypocrite because every Christian sins. Well, Christian theology teaches that we all sin. We sin, we repent, we confess, we make reconciliation if it's possible. The fact that we sin doesn't in and of itself make us a hypocrite. It's when I sit here and I put on a mask and I pretend to be something that I'm not, that I become a hypocrite. I become a hypocrite when I tell you to do some behavior that I am all the time unrepentantly doing myself. When I preach and I do not practice and I have no desire to reconcile those two, then I am in fact a hypocrite. So while it is true that we are not hypocrites just because we sin, all of us have played the hypocrite at certain times of our lives. There are times when we have not risen to the level that we ought to in our teaching and life of following God. But that's his condemnation of them. They are putting on a mask to be something opposite of what they ought to be, what the law says they should be, because they're putting on this face to the outside world. You preach but you do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. What are the heavy burdens that they're putting on people's backs? Let me give you a list. No, wait, that is the burden. The list is the burden. Let me tell you what you have to do to be a good Christian. I remember going to a seminar once on parenting, okay? And this guy gets up there and he starts talking about what a dad needs to do. The dad needs to get up in the morning and he re needs to read his Bible for whatever it was, 30 minutes. Okay, I'm, I'm good with that. You ought to do that. He needs to spend time with his wife reading the Bible and discussing it for 30 minutes. And I'm sitting there with my brother-in-law, and I'm actually, I'm a math major, I'm actually writing down these numbers. Then he needs to spend time with each child individually. I've got eight children. <laughs> then he needs to have family devotionals when he eats. And I'm getting down to this list, and it's three and a half hours long. And I'm sitting there thinking, I've got to get to work. I work for a living. You know what this guy did for a living? He gave seminars about being a dad, <laughs> which is fine. I have no problem with it. But he was creating a list that us normal people couldn't possibly keep. 
what the Pharisees were doing were they were, they were creating a list of behavior that no one but a professional righteous person, a Pharisee, could possibly ever keep. Now, the crowd was kind of impressed that they could keep it. I would be impressed if I could spend three and a half hours every morning doing something, but I can't. So it's kind of like, I'm impressed that you can, but it's a burden. You are telling me I am not right with God unless I do this list. It is a burden that you're putting on my back and you're doing nothing to help me deal with that. When we do finish the book of Matthew, we're going to move to the book of Galatians. And if you know what the book of Galatians is about, you're aware that it is a discussion. It's not much of a discussion. Paul's not discussing it with anybody. It is his proclamation that those who are trying to enforce Judaism and force it on the new Gentile believers are putting a burden that they cannot keep. And that's not what God intended. So the Pharisees are saying, you want to be right with God? Here's the list. And here's how it's interpreted. And it is a burden and it is a weight. And I guarantee you, in the morning, when you don't fulfill that list, you're going to feel guilty and you should. So instead of helping them, instead of showing mercy to them, instead of trying to help them to progress in their relationship with God, all they're doing is piling one more thing on their back. Now, I am not going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you at some point in your Christian life felt that there were people just adding one more thing, one more thing on the top? And you know what? Some of those things we ought to do. We ought to read our Bible. We ought to pray. We ought to serve others. But none of that makes us right with God. The finished work of Jesus Christ makes us right with God. The others, that just helps us maintain the relationship that He has brought to us. But the Pharisees weren't into that. Here's one more thing. Here's one more thing. Here's a hundred more things. Here's a thousand more things. They put on heavy burdens and don't lift a finger to help them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. I've got to say, my fringes are not long. What? What in the world is a phylacteries? Am I even pronouncing that correctly? The Old Testament in Deuteronomy talks about the importance of the law. Okay? The law is important. And it says, write it on your hand, put it on your forehead, so you will remember it. Now, I believe it's talking somewhat metaphorically. Keep it ready at hand. Keep it always on your mind. But you know, if it says, write it on your forehead and write it on your hand, maybe we should write it on our forehead and write it on our hand. But instead of tattooing it on, what they would do is they'd have a little box. And they would put a scripture in that box and they'd tie it on their arm. I don't know why it was their left arm, but they'd write it on their arm. Or they'd put it in a little box or on their forehead. Now, I could make it tiny. I could make a tiny one on my arm. In fact, if I put a tiny one on my arm, you might never see it. And what's the good of being righteous if nobody sees it? So instead, I'll put this huge thing on my arm so I'm walking down the road and everybody knows I must have the whole Bible inside that thing. Because if you have one this big, I need to have one this big to show that I'm better than you. Okay? I mean, if you carry your pocket Bible, I need to carry my study Bible that is this big. Put down that electronic thing. 
Why would I do that? Because I want you to see how righteous I am. I am doing my deeds to be seen by others. We talked about all of this, if you remember, in the Sermon on the Mount. Because we talked about this contrast about don't do your acts of righteousness in order to be seen by others. When you pray, go into your closet. When you fast, clean yourself up so it doesn't look like you're fasting. When you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Do it because when nobody else sees it, God sees it. He sees what you're doing. And here's the question. Do you want God to see how important the scripture is to you? Or do you just want your neighbor to see? Now, there are some acts of righteousness. We had a long discussion about this. There are some acts of righteousness that by their very nature are public events. But if that becomes your motivation for doing them, you ought to go hide in your closet and pray some more. We do have public prayer. But if all your prayer is public, if there is no closet work being done, you're probably doing things just to be seen by others. And that's what he's accusing them of. Their fringes are long. They would wear um, prayer shawls that had uh, fringes on them. I just keep thinking of the Surrey with the fringe on top. <laughs> Oklahoma. Um, and so, you know, you can have a shawl, a prayer shawl that's, well, I don't know, underneath your clothes. Nobody would see it. But what's the fun of that? I want one that really impresses people. If one person has fringes this big, I've got, you see the game, right? You see the game of who is the most righteous based on external behavior. And they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats at the synagogue and greetings in the marking place being called rabbi but others. But you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servants Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. They love showing up in public and have somebody yell across the room, Hey, Rabbi, come sit at the best seat. Whew. Aren't I cool? Aren't I cool? And it says, don't call anybody father, don't call anybody teacher. Now, let me stop right there. I do have a biological father, okay? Now, the fact that I called my biological father father is not a violation of this instruction to us. What this is looking at is I am going to call someone my spiritual leader in order to draw attention to their being, well, more righteous than everybody else. It's kind of this club they had started, right? I'm going to call you the Grand Poopah so that next year you'll call me the Grand Poopah and everyone will think we're Grand Poopahs. And they said, no. You remember, right? We've done this at least three times in the book of Matthew where the disciples start arguing among themselves who is going to be the greatest. You know, they even drag their mother into it. You know, who's going to turn down somebody's mother, right? When you get to heaven, Jesus, can one of my, no, when your kingdom starts, can one of my sons sit on your right and the other on your left? And Jesus said, no, that's not for me to determine. And the disciples get, get ticked off. And we had a discussion whether they were ticked off because they wanted to be best or because they hadn't thought of it. I don't know. And what does Jesus tell them? The leader is the servant. Jesus is going to demonstrate to us throughout his ministry and as he approaches his death 
that the leader is the one that is the servant of all. The one that ministers. If I stand up here just to impress you and to be the grand poopah, I am doing it for the wrong reason. I need to understand that all of us are brothers and sisters in Christ and we are all under the authority of Christ and under the authority of God. I may stand up here and teach. That's fine. That's the gift that God has given me. So be it. Don't ever think, though, that somehow I'm on some elevated plane, that the pastor, we treat them with respect and dignity. The pastors, we're told to do that. But we acknowledge the fact that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. We're not doing this for show. And the examination of our heart is that we need to make sure that's why we're doing it. What is the solution to that? Go serve somebody and don't tell anybody. Nobody. Nobody. If you can't possibly do that, then you have the leaven of the Pharisee waiting inside of you. Once again, we have our public prayer. The public prayer should just be the tip of the iceberg of what happens in the closet. We serve others in a public way. That should be the tip of the iceberg of the service that we're doing that nobody knows about. Because that's how we learn to humble ourselves. And the scriptures are full of passages about what God does to the hum for the humble and what he does to the proud. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Once again, who's doing the humbling and the exalting. Well, we can do it. And if we humble ourselves, God will do the other side. Or we can exalt ourselves and God will do the other side. The question is, do you want to be humbled by yourself and exalted by God or exalted by yourself and humbled by God? I think I know what the right answer is. So, verse 13, we get to the first of the woes. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Let me inject just one little discussion at this point. If you're called by God to be a prophet, then by all means, go out and be a prophet. Stand up in public, shouting hellfire and brimstone, and calling people hypocrites. If God calls you to do it, by all means do it. I am not convinced that we need to copy the tone of the rest of this chapter in our daily encounters with people around us. Number one, they're not going to like it. Number two, we're not God. So when Jesus is going to call them, you brood of vipers... Jesus is God, and he knows that they're a brood of vipers. I don't know. I don't know the human heart. I don't know why people do what they do. I am called to show mercy to those around us, us okay? So I'm not necessarily saying that we need to go out in public tomorrow, stand on a box on the street corner, and tell people, you're a brood of vipers, We'll let God deal with the brood, okay? We're going to deal with our own hearts and sharing the gospel to others. That's what we're doing, okay? So, but this is God. And when God calls somebody a brood of vipers, we ought to pay attention to make sure we're not in that brood. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. So, let's just look at the picture of it, okay? Here's the kingdom of heaven right here. Right here. And the Pharisees are standing right here telling people, no, you can't go in. 
I am working at keeping people out of the kingdom. You go, how are they doing that? Well, they're sitting here at the door of the kingdom saying, here's the list. Aren't I better than you? You're never going to make it. You're never going to be good enough. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven because you don't look like me. And the people who are standing there wanting to go into the kingdom look at those Pharisees and they go, you're right. I can't do that. And they walk away. Question. How do we today keep people out of the kingdom of heaven? Now, we're not going to have a discussion about predestination and the sovereignty of God and all that stuff. You're not going to do it. Suffice it to say that God has given us the responsibility to welcome people into the kingdom, to bring people into the kingdom, to encourage people to enter the kingdom. And oftentimes we, in our discussion, we in our behavior, we in our actions, keep people away. You're a Christian and you act like that? I mean, I have had people in my life who I wanted, and I, I probably should have, I wanted to talk to them and say, either change your life or stop talking like you're a Christian. Because you're messing the whole thing up. When I hinder people's view of the kingdom, I am hindering people from entering the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the people. We'll throw in the Sadducees too, but that's a different category. They were supposed to be teaching the people. They were supposed to be encouraging people to enter the kingdom of God. They were supposed to help them be right with God. Instead, it was do this or you're dead. Do this, do this, do this. And they were hindering people from entering the kingdom. Now it's interesting because if you go to the next one, we're going backwards in just a moment, because you'll have noticed one thing in that if you're reading an ESV, verse 13 is followed by verse 15. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. To me, these two verses kind of stand in contrast with each other. One of them says you're not letting people in. The other one says you're going to the ends of the earth to find converts. Well, which is it? Well, they're going to the ends of the earth to find people who will be just like them. I mean, I've got to be rather picky if I'm going to find somebody who can be a good Pharisee like me, right? I can't just take any riffraff into the kingdom. I mean, it's kind of like Jesus picking his 12 apostles. What a bunch of losers. We can't take those people. Fishermen? Ah! We've got to go find top-notch guys. I've got to go to the best universities. I've got to go to the best synagogues. I've got to go to find the people who are really determined to do whatever it takes to look better than everybody else. And as soon as I find one, I go, yay. And I bring him in, and guess what? He's twice as bad as I am, and he's going to hell just like I am. Oh, that's kind of a loose translation. Twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Once again, I wouldn't recommend going around telling people they're a child of hell. It's quite possibly true. But I wouldn't necessarily use that word. Now, I know somebody's going to ask me, what happened to verse 14? 
Well, verse 14 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. That's the King James. This was my first adult Bible. What happened to verse 14? We actually had this long discussion, and it was a long discussion at the time, so we're not going to go through it again, about manuscripts and where we got the New Testament, etc. And we discussed the fact that when the King James was written, they had a limited set of Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, and they used those to write the King James Version. Now we have boatloads, and what, it has, what has been determined is that this verse is not in some of the older Greek manuscripts. So there is the idea that it was added at a later date. It exists in a lot of Greek manuscripts, not just the older ones. And we had a long discussion about why they chose one versus the other. But the conclusion of all of that, and the conclusion for today, is that we acknowledge the fact that while there are some of these verses, there is no Christian doctrine of any importance that is changed one way or the other on the existence or non-existence of these verses. I mean, if one of these verses was the only verse that told us Jesus was the Son of God, then that would be rather important. But you know, if there's seven woes against the Pharisees versus eight woes against the Pharisees, I think you still get the general idea that Jesus has some difficulties with the Pharisees. So this passage, that verse that was added, is probably added at a later date. It is very similar to some other passages that we do see in the New Testament. So theologically, it's not wrong. We just believe that it was not in the original manuscripts. And that's why many of the more modern contemporary translations omit that verse. In fact, if you have an ESV or an NIV, there's probably a footnote that contains that verse. And there's a discussion at the beginning of your ESV that talks about what drove some of these decisions regarding the inclusion or non-inclusion of certain verses. Okay? Once again, we had that discussion many years ago. Yes? Her question is, what was, what was driving the Pharisees? One answer is ego. And I'll go with that answer. But let's back up a little bit. Because I've always felt, and, and this lesson is why, okay, that the Pharisees oftentimes get a bad rap. Does that sound bad? Okay. I, I, I thought one time of writing a book, you know, entitled Confessions of a Reluctant Pharisee. <laughs> the Pharisees really did, in their initial state, want to be right with God, okay? Remember, the southern kingdom was captured by the Babylonians, sent off into captivity. Not everybody was sent off into captivity. Some stayed around. They intermarried with the locals. They were worshiping Jehovah, and they were worshiping this. They were worshiping a, a bag of things. So finally, the Persians let them come back, and the ones that came back saw this mess and said, we've got to get back to the law. What we're worshiping now is a hodgepodge of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that. We've got to take this seriously. So they revisited this law and they said, okay, thou shalt not do this. Honor the Sabbath day. Okay, we ought to do that. What does it mean to honor the Sabbath day? And they started constructing a series of lists to ensure that they honored the Sabbath day. And they wanted to obey the law of God. It's just that when they wanted to honor God, they then jumped to keeping this list, and then they jumped to keeping this list, and they jumped to keeping this list. And eventually, honoring God meant following this tradition 
that had been put together by the Pharisee before them, the Pharisee before them. There are Pharisees that are mentioned that he doesn't necessarily blast, okay? We saw a couple of weeks ago, one of them asked him a question, what is the greatest law? And he told him, well, in the Mark account, it says, the Pharisee said, you answered right. He acknowledged that you gave the right answer. So that Pharisee was close, but he was still a Pharisee. When we get to the book of Galatians, we're going to see Paul was a Pharisee. But, but, but he was changed by the gospel. So I sit there and I want to be right with God. And that's a great thing, by the way. Okay? I want to do what God wants me to do. That's a great thing. But generation after generation of piling this on top of each other, and all of a sudden, while I'm acting like I'm doing the things of God, I'm doing something totally different. And we're going to see that, if we make it, <laughs> in this passage. You're doing this thing, you're tithing, and you're tithing every minuscule piece of your life. And you ought to do that. He tells them, you ought to do that. But while you're focused on this, you are ignoring justice, mercy to those around you. What we begin to do as a Pharisee is to focus on some minor activity that may be right. And we begin to think that I can ignore the big stuff while focusing on that. Go ahead. It's the root of every religion. I want to be my own God. Yeah. I want to make it my time. Yeah. I want to be and I want the list. Now, you tie that in with our egos and who does this attract people? What type of people does this attract? It attracts those who want to look better than other people. Okay? So, you have the people who want to be right with God, and you have the people who want to look like they're right with God, and we end up with religious fanatics who aren't doing what God wants them to do. And we look at that and we go, oh, I could never do that. But you know, you have Baptists, I was raised Baptist, who begin to think that being a Baptist is more important than being a Christian. Well, it's the same thing, isn't it? Well, yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> Most of the time. And we begin to think that if you don't belong to a Southern Baptist church, which I grew up in, and I'm, I still call myself a Baptist, if you don't belong to that, then you're going to hell in a handbasket. Well, maybe, maybe not. Probably not. We begin to focus on the differences between the Baptist and the Methodist and the you pick the other ones, and we begin to think that that's more important than grace and mercy and sharing the gospel with people. It's the leaven of the Pharisee that permeates our lives if we do not watch it. And what he's telling them is, if you want to examine yourself, what are you willing to do in secret? He keeps driving back to that because the Pharisees want to be seen they want people to see what they're doing. We would never do that, right? I mean, if you want a conclusion of this, this week, go do something for someone else and don't let anybody see it. And that will work in your heart. And then don't come next Sunday and say, I did something in secret and nobody knew about it because you just cheated. <laughs> It's a joke that I have with myself, okay? I do something in secret, and then I'll try to figure out how to work it into a lesson. <laughs> I can't do that. You can't do that. <sighs> Woe to me, we're not going to make it through all these. <laughs> Verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides. Let's just stop right there. What is a guide? 
A guide is someone that shows you the path, right? Someone that walks and says, this is where we're going, I'll get you there. Or somebody that walks and shows you the important places. I think I've told you the story before, right? My wife and I went to uh, uh, Germany one year. We left all the kids at home, it was amazing. And it was the off season. It was the off season. But we went to um, Neuschwanstein, which is the Chidichi Bang Bang Castle. And there were no English tours. But the guide says, I know English, I'll do the German tour and then I'll tell you. I said, great. So we go in, first room, he rattles off in German for five minutes and then he turns to us and says, bedroom. <laughs> and, I, and I somehow think I didn't get the complete story. The guide is the person who leads you through, shows you what's important, shows you why it's important, and helps you through your life. Now, what if the guide is blind? Okay. Don't let them drive the tour bus. What does it mean if those people who are supposed to be guiding you are spiritually blind and they don't understand the truth, you're going to go off a cliff. You're probably going to go off a cliff if he's driving the tour bus. But for sure, you're not going to understand the importance of the things around you. I might add, we're called to guide other people. You say, wait a minute, no I'm not. I'm not a teacher, I'm not a preacher, I don't have that function. Well, you have family, you have friends, you have people that God has brought into your life unless you're alone on a deserted island, and if you're alone on a deserted island, you're not here today. So if you're here today, God has brought you into contact with someone and you're instructed to help them through the path of life. How do you do that? By learning the scriptures. How did the Pharisees become blind? Because they didn't pay attention to the truth. Woe to you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells on it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. What does this mean? We talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no, no. They had developed this complicated system of oaths. I promise to do something. I double promise to do something. I promise on my mother's grave, except my mother's alive. I promise on my mother's grave to do something. And there's this escalation of promises. Why? Because that shows that I'm really serious. If you're really serious, all you would do, say is, I'll do it, and you'll do it. Because your word means something. But in their structure... They had said, if you swear by the temple, it means this. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, then it means you've really got to do it. And if you swear by the altar, if you swear by this, all of it is an attempt to get out of doing what you said you would do. And he says, don't do that. You're just blind guides. You think you're telling people what is important and what's not important, but you're blind. You don't see the truth that God is in charge of all of this. And what are we told elsewhere? It's better not to tell an oath than to tell one and break it. We need to live our lives in such a way that when we say we're going to do something, we're going to do it. And we don't have to develop these complicated oaths 
to show that this one's more important than this one and this one I'll do and this one I won't. And he says, don't do that. We're only halfway through and we ran out of time. What is the point of all of this? It's where we began. There are good old-fashioned Pharisees in the world today. They are. Some of you may have gone to church with some of them. Some of you may have actually been raised by some of them. We need to be aware of what they're doing. But we also need to examine ourselves so that leaven of the Pharisee, that little seed that permeates our lives, doesn't take root in us. Because I can almost guarantee you that none of these Pharisees started thinking, oh, I'm going to become a horrible person to the people around me. They thought, I want to be right with God. 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 And pretty soon they're doing, well, they're Pharisees. Because doing right with God became looking to the people like I'm doing right with God. Because the acclaim of the people became more important to them than the acclaim of God. So we don't want to be the blind guide. We don't want to be the hypocrite. Now, we all fall into the hypocrite category at times. We repent, we confess, we trust in the grace of God, and we move on. And that's what our life is to be. Jesus is going to tell the Pharisees. No, he's telling the people to watch out for the Pharisees. And the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and all these people who left to themselves will fight amongst themselves are going to come together and they're going to say, okay, we've had enough of this guy and they're going to kill him. Unbeknownst to them, that is God's plan, unbeknownst to them. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that you have given us. Thank you for removing the burdens and providing us a way of salvation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.